This is Kamal Shanigan's episode 874, A Conversation with Bob Budiansky. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. This is episode 874. It's our conversation with Bob Budiansky. Uh, Bob worked at Marvel for a long time in the 80s and 90s, and he's perhaps most well-known in the Transformers community as being the one who kind of created a lot of the characters and characters' names um, and their personalities in the early days of the Transformers. Uh, his legacy is very large there. Uh, ironically, we don't actually talk a lot about, uh, about Transformers in this episode. We talk a lot about working in Marvel editorial, working as the Spider-Man editor-in-chief uh, in the br- brief experience in the 90s when uh, you had five editors-in-chief running Marvel instead of one kind of overarching editor-in-chief, uh, which is definitely an interesting experiment, to say the least. Um, and he also worked in special projects. He worked on a lot of the trading cards of the time um, in the kind of early 90s period when those were really blowing up. Um, and uh, he also created uh, Sleepwalker, which actually, sadly, we didn't even talk about in this uh, particular uh, episode. We talk a lot about getting into Marvel, working at Marvel, the different kind of tenures uh, stories he has about um, some of the people who worked there. There's a, a, f- a few people that ask for specific stories about because I'm always interested uh, to hear about you know kind of the comings and goings of the uh, the, the bullpen so to speak back in the day um, and it was I really enjoyed this conversation with Bob uh, extremely open and uh, giving with his time and hopefully we'll have him back at some point to actually talk about Transformers maybe uh, but again uh, I hope you enjoy this episode you can rate and review the show on iTunes subscribe to us on iTunes and listen to us on Stitcher you can also email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com without further ado let's jump right into the conversation with Bob Budiansky Enjoy. Okay. Bob, Hi. welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you for asking. It's great to have you. So I always go back uh, when I have people on. I want to know kind of their first interactions with comics, uh, when it kind of first entered their life, and in a lot of cases changed their lives. So what was it about comics, and at what age were you when you first kind of interacted with them? Well, I remember distinctly looking at comic books when I was probably about five years old. They weren't mine. They might have belonged to one of my older brothers. Or we had family friends that used to visit in upstate New York. They always had some comic books lying around. Mm. So definitely looked at some of their comics. I didn't buy my first comic book until I was seven years old. Okay. So my first comic book that I actually bought with my own allowance money uh, was around June of 1961. Now you know how old I am. And, um, and so uh, I still have it. And it's wow. a, it was a great comic book, Justice League of America number six, The oh, Wheel wow. of Misfortune. It's a wonderful, wonderful Justice League of America comic book, and um, and that got me rolling, you know. And uh, I also distinctly remember that one of those vague memories of of comic books that I didn't own that I looked at when I was younger mm-hmm. was uh, an earlier issue of Justice League of America. So I was definitely influenced, like, oh, I, I like this, and, and now finally I have money to spend where I could buy it for myself but it, that took several, that took probably like a year later or so mm-hmm. it's interesting I guess there's something about that intangible you know when you buy your own first something right it's always going to kind of stick out to you um, yeah. I, I wonder that actually with, with regards to my own son like 
I love comic books, so I've exposed him to a lot of comics, but he hasn't actually had the experience of kind of going out and buying his own, and it's obviously a little bit harder for kids to do it. He can't just go to a drugstore or like a corner store anymore and pick them up. But So I do wonder when we'll be able to kind of go to a store again and actually go have him pick out his own comic now that he's starting to read more as well. So I'm always interested to hear that. It's interesting because it feels like in your peer group, you're almost a later bloomer in some ways because um, some people are, are saying that they were buying them at like four or five um, wow. in your kind of cohort so it's interesting I guess I was, I guess I was slow I guess I was a slow <laughs> learner or it just took you a while to have the, the money to buy uh, your own early adapter which wasn't even a term back then <laughs> <laughs> so so you, you know you, you start reading those issues um was there a point where you kind of left comics or kind of when you grew a little bit older you just kind of stayed away or did you always comics were always there Oh no! There was definitely a point when I got to ni- when I got to uh, ninth grade, but that's when I started high school, mm-hmm. and I felt, you know, first of all, I I, I was losing interest in them anyway. Okay. But then I figured, you know, I'm, I'm entering a new phase. I don't want to look like, you know, that stereotypical of the time comic book nerd, and you know, I'll, I I can leave him behind, and I did. I just cold turkey left him behind uh, for many years until I got to college. And then when I went to college, uh, not far from where you live, by the way, in Buffalo, and um, I went to college, and after about a year or so, I I had a friend there um, who was really into comics, and he introduced me to a couple of comics that I was completely unaware of, and I was fascinated by it, like, wow, there's nothing like this. And when I was collecting comics, you know, like several years earlier, there was nothing like this. And specifically, it was Conan the Barbarian. Oh, really? Between the stories having uh, far more maturity than your typical superhero comic book, and the artwork, which was just gorgeous, I was either, uh, I think the first ones I looked at was with John Buscema's artwork, but uh, also, until very recently, Barry Windsor Smith had been drawing the book. So I was able to pick up on a couple of the older older uh, uh, editions of the, of the book. Um, Anyway, I was just like fascinated, like this is really, you know, thrilling stuff. I love this. Um, so that got me back into comics, and uh, and so I, was, I, like I said, I was collecting Conan and the Barbarian. I was getting some back issues from a local a local store in Buffalo near my college, and um, which is still there, by the way. And um, well, it's moved locations, and um, and then uh, I, you know, I branched out a little bit and bought some other things that were of that uh, time period. Started getting back into comics. Given when you started reading comics and then kind of walked away from them, and then coming back with Conan, was that such a kind of game changer for you that it's not just superheroes? Like up until that point, you probably were more exposed to superheroes at the time, and suddenly it's a very much more mature thing. Did that kind of open your eyes as to what comics could really do that maybe as a kid you hadn't been able to be experiencing? Well, it certainly brought in my horizon. Like, oh, they're doing a different sort. You know, like I was definitely completely immersed in superheroes that's all I bought when I was a kid mm-hmm. and I guess I fizzled out on that eventually you know I, I had my run with superheroes and even though I went from from DC comics which were at the, uh, the, the 1960s era DC comics I always thought it had well generally I mean this is a general this is a very broad generalization always had very imaginative stories but the characters were somewhat cardboard they were kind of somewhat two dimensional um and then I moved over to Marvel Comics in the mid-60s and started collecting Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four and where there was a lot more depth to what was going on. So I knew that there was, you know, there was some kind of a, a growth 
between what I started out with and what I eventually started collecting in addition to what I started out with. So I knew there was more than just this one brand, this one flavor of comic books. Mm-hmm. But still, I had reached my limit and, and stopped collecting until I discovered Conan. And yeah, they showed me that comic books had a, uh, a, a wider a variety of, uh, of, of genres than just the, the my basic superhero, which I knew existed even when I was a kid. I just didn't collect. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't collect uh, uh, Adventures of Sinbad, or you know, there were lots, there were lots of adaptations of classic literature, mm-hmm. classic adventure adventure literature. Now, in comics, I wasn't interested in that. I wasn't interested in Archie. So, yeah, just uh, such superheroes. I have to interrupt my podcast. My dog demands my attention. Absolutely. Okay. I hope, well, you I hope you and your listeners. Understand and our dog lovers. Excuse me. Okay, I'm back. So uh, here's a question. So, well, first of all, what, what did you take in school? Uh, when you say school, what school are you talking Sorry, about? Sorry, uh, initially when you were in that college there, when you first kind of get. Re- oh, I was a civil engineering major. Okay, so I got to ask the question: How do how do your paths eventually lead you to the comic book industry and you know entering as an editor? Well, um, all the time I was a civil engineering major. I worked for the college newspaper as an artist. Um, and I always, in the back of my mind, thought, well, I'd like to be a comic book artist someday. But as I got older, you mean, meaning as I moved up from junior high school to high school, yeah, that didn't seem very practical. And I always had an interest in science. In fact, in fact I went to a high school that specialized in science. And, um, and so when I went to college, I was a civil engineering major, but meanwhile I was practicing being an artist by drawing for the newspaper. I was a pretty decent artist for my age at that time. And I had a comic strip for a couple of years on the, on the newspaper. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then eventually uh, uh, I graduated and I stayed for another year for grad school for, in engineering. <clears throat> at the same time I graduated, a, a fellow, a colleague of mine from the student newspaper also graduated and he got a job at Marvel Comics. And he knew of my interest in comics, so during my my breaks, I lived in the New York. I lived in, in New York City. I lived in. The, I grew up in the Bronx, so I'd come down during a holiday break, and I he said, "Come on by the office and you know visit. Bring your bring your samples of your work. You know." So <laughs> I went up there, and uh, I didn't impress anybody with my samples, unfortunately. Uh, in fact, I was told by the art director at the time, "You should find you should find another career." But anyway, um, but meanwhile, uh, time went on, and, and as the semester, as the spring semester came to a close, my friend quit his job, and he said, "Would you like to interview for my job? It's an editorial assistant job. It's like the lowest rung on the ladder for editorial." And so I said, "Sure." So I got on the phone. I interviewed with his boss. Uh, it was on a Wednesday. Uh, my friend was leaving. His boss was desperate. Uh, he'd already gotten some um, positive recommendations about me from both my friend who I would be replacing as well as other people I had met down at the Marvel offices who had met me when I visited, visited on a couple of occasions. So uh, so over a phone interview, after a half hour, I was hired. So I was in Buffalo on a Wednesday and I was in New York City on Monday working there. Wow. I dropped out of college. I dropped, I dropped out of grad school and, and uh, that's how I got started no. My boss, my boss is Larry Lieber, Stan's brother. Oh, really? So, what yeah. was it like working for Larry? Oh, Larry was fine. I learned a lot from him. Um, yeah, and sometimes I see him at conventions these days. We always say hello to him. We always get along great. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I was told when I applied for the job, don't tell Larry that you want to be an artist because then he won't hire you. Hmm. He just wants somebody to be an editorial assistant to do all the work he wants to hand off to his assistant. Mm -hmm. So I didn't tell him that on my interview. But once I got down there, I made it clear I wanted to be an artist. And I had lots of opportunities to um, improve my skills and do sketches for other artists to, for, for the work. We, I worked in the Marvel British department. So we had we had need, it was, re, it was a reprint department. But we did have need of some original artwork occasionally. So I would get involved in either doing sketches for other artists and eventually doing the um, artwork myself for, for a lot of these books. And, uh, and it was a wonderful experience. And our art director uh, was Marie Severin. Oh, wow. She was like most incredible teacher. She was the best teacher I ever had in art. She was so generous with her time. She was so good at you know explaining things and showing showing how to draw things the Marvel way. And she was the person who told me six months earlier, find another career. <laughs> but I'm sure she forgot. She told I me. Mean, I'm sure she told that to a lot of people. I was just another another wannabe walking through her walking through her office. Mm -hmm. So I don't resent her one one bit. I don't. I mean, what it proves is that you should never take no for an answer. Mm -hmm. True. So I, I I was you know very thankful that I had the opportunity to work with her once I got established there. When when you're working in an editorial like that, like. I mean, obviously, when you started it, you may not have had kind of grand designs and where you wanted to go, but did you have an idea of where what you might be able to use that job as a stepping stone towards, or was it just more of a, this is an opportunity, I'm going to take advantage of it? Well, I wanted to become a regular monthly comic book artist. That was my that was my goal. Now, like I said, from junior high school, even earlier probably from when I was first buying comics and started loving the artwork in them and started drawing and trying to imitate them, um, you know, I wanted to grow up to be a comic book artist. So once I got there... That was my, my my secret agenda to become a like so many other people who started a lower rung, you know, as an art assistant or an editorial assistant or whatever. If you want to move up to the big time, and if you're an artist in comic books, the big time is getting a monthly title a monthly title of your own. Mm -hmm. Would would I, obviously you worked at Marvel for a fair bit of time? Was is there a particular editorial period that you think was kind of your favorite period to kind of be working in that area? Or I mean, obviously. Sorry, I'm sorry. To, you have to hold that. You have to hold that thought. Sure. Another another four legged creature demands my attention. She wants to come back in. So, looking at the kind of editorial period, I'm just curious. Like you, you worked in editorial for a long period, and I'm just curious, what was your kind of favorite period working in an editorial? Like in terms of the personalities involved, editor in chief, etc. Like, what was your kind of your favorite period? Well. I mean, the good thing about Marvel is if you knew your job, you know, if you did a good job, you were pretty much allowed to do your job, at least when I was there. Mm -hmm. So initially, I was an editorial assistant, and then I went freelance and did some odd, basically odds and end type jobs. I was you know, getting a little bit of artwork jobs, but I was doing other things that were you know, not, not, you know, I was doing color separations, you know, not, not exactly what I was, but I was, was paying the bills. Uh, and then I came. Then I came back on staff as an assistant editor, which is, sounds almost like editorial assistant, but definitely with a step up. I worked on mainstream instead of the British department reprints. I worked on mainstream Marvel books, but I still worked under another editor. And then I went freelance to be actually a monthly artist. And then I came back on staff again as a full editor. So as a full editor, obviously, as the world as the word would imply, full editor. I had I was in charge of stuff. You know, I, had, I had certain books I was in charge of, which is where you want to be if you are an editor. You want to get to that point. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, 
So throughout that period of being a full editor, which was 13 years for me, I went from editor to special projects editor to executive editor to editor-in-chief of the Spider-Man line over those 13 years. Um, you know, everything was a step up, and depending on the projects I was involved with, um, it really didn't matter who the personalities were that were over me, usually, because usually they recognized that I knew what I was doing, and they said, okay, Bob, here's a project, do it. And so it, and so most of the time, I would say, I had very little friction uh, with anybody I worked with uh, in a... In a, in a managerial capacity once I became a full editor mm-hmm. you know I, I was, it was much more collaborative and uh, you know it was, it, was, it was a good working relationship almost all the time who would you say was maybe the biggest uh, impact on you at, from an editorial perspective as to kind of a model on how to be the best editor you could be like who do you think you learned the most from well Jim Shooter well okay I'll, I'll put two people together okay so I was an assistant editor for Jim Salakrup uh, and um and he was great to work with. He was, you know, he, he really respected my abilities, even though I was, I was pretty new to the job. I think actually I was older than he was by maybe a year, but but he started very young, so he had more, he had a lot more experience. And um, so Jim Salakrip was great to work with. I learned a lot of the the basics of you know how to traffic a book, you know how to get it back and forth between writers and editors, and what to expect between writers and editors and artists and editors, I should say, and you know, what to expect from each person, you know, what, what, you know, what, what the expectations is when, when they turn something in, what, what, you should, what you should be looking for, what they're responsible for, what you're responsible for. So he was a good role model. And then she, Jim Shooter was the one who hired me back on staff as a full editor, and Jim gave me a lot of great opportunities. You know, he, he, uh, and, and, and as many people, I'm sure, have pointed out in various ways, he made the he got the uh, trains to run on time once he became editor in chief. So um, and he'd already been editor in chief for, for several years by the time he hired me as a full editor. And so uh, you know I again knew knew what was expected, knew how to properly schedule books and and make sure I could get books out on time and what what uh, uh, you know what precautions to take to make sure things wouldn't run late and who to pull in for extra help when it was necessary and so on. So uh, they're both good role models in that respect. Okay. I'm curious about, I always ask people who worked in this period, if you have a specific or favorite Mark Gruenwald story. <laughs> well, Mark and I were friends. We were, we were you know, he, I, I always considered him a good friend. We, we, we would go out to lunch together. We went on vacations together uh, with, you know, with other people at Marvel. And uh, uh, he, he was a great guy. And um, so my, my, Okay, so the, the, Marvel, the, the Mark Winwell story that stands out for me um, was Mark kept a very unusual editorial office. You know, there would all, he, would, he would close the door and, and then like two days later he had transformed his office in some weird way. You know, in a fun way, but you know, just some unusual, uh, unexpected way. So there was a period of time, sometime in the mid-80s, um, uh, probably around 1984, 85, probably around 85. I know Jim Shooter was still editor-in-chief. So Mark was telling people, usually like the college interns, the, the assistant editors, I'll give you a dollar for every poster you bring in of this particular personality. So there was a particular ad campaign at the time 
for a local newscaster, uh, a local, the local newscast on the CBS network. It was called, um, well, I don't know what it was called, but it was just the, the local newscasters. Mm-hmm. And they had these posters, which were just headshots of each of the main newscasters. And one of the headshots was of, of uh, Michelle Marsh. You could find them in subways. You could find them in bus kiosks. You know, like they were posted all around the city. So he said to people, and it was, and it was just like this very serious face of Michelle Marsh staring at you. And it had like a motto on it, like I was saying, like, uh, uh, you're involved, so we're involved. Or some, you know, newscaster type, you know, jargon, you know, like, mm-hmm. I don't know. Whatever it said. But anyway, it was just kind of, you know, it, it just made a statement that was sort of wonky a little bit. And anyway, so he, he offered a dollar to every person who could, a dollar for every poster that a person would bring in, which is, you know, between you and me, I think that I think statute of limitations allow me to say this, and the fact that Mark is no longer with us allows me to say this. You know, that's theft. <laughs> He's telling people, I'll give you a bucket to steal these, these, these posters that are all over the city that were put up by the local news station. So, so anyway, he collected all these posters, and... And then he shut his office for a couple of days with him and his uh, assistant or whoever inside. And then we, and then he allowed people to come in. And what he had done was he had plastered these posters all over his office, like ceilings, uh, walls, um, uh, flat <laughs> files, desks. You know, he he put the posters on his desk so that they were they were they were slotted so they could pull the he could pull the drawers out. You know. But the poster still would, you know, be complete there you know, between the different drawers. He just wallpapered everything with these posters. It was really incredible. Um, so it was quite an effect. But that was just part of the uh, performance art that he was doing. So the other thing was, then, like, you know, this I don't know how how long he left. He left his office like that, decorated with all these Michelle Marsh posters. Um, but anyway, uh, at some point, again, he closed his office and he announced that M Day was coming. M Day was coming, so he put out like you know memos to everybody knew M Day was coming. You know whatever it was like on a Wednesday at one o'clock, everybody line up for M Day. So there was this line going down the hallways in the marble offices, you know, way down the hall. And finally, he opened up his door, and everybody who came in was given a cutout of Michelle Marsh's face from the rectangular poster with the eyes with the eyes cut out, so you could see. And they were rubber banded so that you could wear it. <laughs> so everybody was given a Michelle Marsh poster to wear, and we all walked in the room one one at a time, and we all put on the poster, including Jim Shooter, as I recall. Oh, really? Uh, <laughs> he was always, you know, even though he was the big boss, he was always up for, you know, office weirdness if it helped to, you know, help the morale, help keep the troops uh, excited about working there. So uh, you know, give him give him a lot of credit for that. Um, Anyway, so his, this Mark's, you know, it's a small editorial office was jammed with, you know, 30, 40, 50 people all wearing the same mask. And one of the people, uh, one of our people uh, uh, videotaped it. So it was like this pan of the sea of identical faces. <laughs> <laughs> so that was M Day or Michelle Marsh Day. <laughs> so, okay, that's, that probably took up half our interview time, but don't keep going. No, no, so that's, that's, I mean, I, as I said, like, 
I mean, I'm, I'm young enough that obviously I never really got to experience Mark Grunewald, but I just love hearing about him and reading articles about him and stories and reminiscing from people who knew him. It sounds like he was just such a, a vibrant personality that unfortunately was taken far too soon. And I'm always yeah. curious, like, what Marvel would have been like if he had stayed or like if he had, obviously hadn't passed away. And it's an, inter- right. an interesting uh, you know, question because everyone has I don't think I've ever found anyone who has a negative thing to say about Mark Grunewald. Oh, I certainly don't. No, he was, he was terrific. He was a wonderful person. And he was super talented as well. For sure. So, um, Chris, when so when you start working with Marvel, how did the Ghost Rider kind of, uh, I guess, cover job kind of first kind of happen and then eventually taking over interiors? Okay, so it's it, it began with Big Ben. <laughs> so as I mentioned, I, I worked for the Marvel uh, British Department. Okay. All right? So... Um, uh, there was a period of time when Ron Wilson became the regular artist on Captain Britain. Now, Captain Britain began the Marvel British Department, mm-hmm. uh, eventually migrated into American books as well as having his own comic book in England, but um, but started out as one, as, as one of these reprint books, but in, in this case, only half the book was reprint. The other half were original news stories of Captain Britain. And so eventually, and John Buscema, uh, first was Herb Shrimpy was the artist, and John Buscema, and eventually Ron Wilson. And Ron Wilson was great at drawing action, didn't really care so much about um, drawing backgrounds. Hmm. Okay? Uh, so I was pretty good at detailed drawing, so I was hired to assist Ron to draw his backgrounds. Oh, really? uh, and because one, because one thing that was important for Captain Britain, we thought, was to make it look British. Mm-hmm. So rather than give it a generic background like you would if it was a typical Marvel comic book, we wanted to draw a Piccadilly Circus, we wanted to draw a Big Ben. Mm-hmm. So like one cover that I drew a lot of was Captain Britain fighting somebody on top of Big Ben. And Big Ben's a pretty complicated edifice. Mm-hmm. You know? so, um, so anyway, I got this reputation of drawing detailed backgrounds. So time passes... And um, this Ghost Rider comic book comes up uh, you know, a couple of years, maybe a couple of years later, a year or two later. And uh, I think Jim Salakrup was the editor. And I might, have been, I might have been his assistant at the time. I don't know if I was. But, um, but anyway, it, strangely enough, it was Ghost Rider versus Space Aliens, okay, which really is not part of um, Ghost Rider's genre, typically. You know, it's more into the supernatural horror stuff. But this is when Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind were like, you know, the hottest movies on the planet. So uh, everybody was trying to jump on the space aliens bandwagon, I suppose. And so Star, so so the spaceship of, the, of these aliens was featured prominently on the cover. And uh, the editor, like I said, I think it was Jim Salakra, um, realized like the artist that he had drawing the interior more than likely would draw something that looked like it was out of the 1950s for a spaceship, like a, like a flying saucer. Mm. Whereas he'd give it to me, and I would I would jazz it up and make it look like something out of Close Encounters, which is exactly what I did. And uh, so it came out to be a really nice cover, and based on that one cover, I became like the semi-regular cover artist of Ghost Rider for the next couple of years. So I think out of like 36 issues, I did about 30 of them or something. Somebody once canceled, but I did a lot of covers. Which is really unusual because I was—I uh, didn't have my own book yet. You know, I was just doing maybe a, an issue here or something or an issue there, but not, not a regular uh, book. But I was a semi-regular artist and ghostwriter, and then eventually, with issue um, sixty-seven or sixty-eight, I became the interior artist as well. Mm-hmm. 
at that point, did it feel kind of like a natural, like, of course, you'd eventually get the, the, the interior gig because you oh, yeah. had been doing the... Yeah. Oh, definitely. I was really excited. I quit, I, I quit my staff job. I was at that time, I was Jim Salakrep's assistant. I quit my staff job so I can do the... Uh, it was like no way for me to be able to do the interior of the book at a nine-to-five job at the same time. So I quit no. the job, and I was looking to do that anyway. So that was my goal, to, to become a, a monthly artist. So what eventually leads you to come back as a full editor then? Like what what kind of what transpired that would lead that to then happen? Well, I was ghostwriter artist for maybe a year and a half and then ghostwriter got canceled. And the day it got canceled, uh, I got enough job offers to continue doing other artwork for other books mm-hmm. for the next five months. So I didn't have any problem having work to do. Mm-hmm. But then soon after that, uh, I don't remember how long, but maybe like a month later, Jim Shooter comes to me and says, uh, I have an editorial position. Would you like to come back on staff? So I realized a couple of things. One was, as much as I like being an artist, it was really um, it was really agony for me. I was very slow. Uh, I was still learning my craft. And I was staying up till 2 o'clock every night, you know, starting, starting at 9 in the morning, 8 in the morning, and up till 2 at night to draw one page and making very little money at it. So, so when this opportunity came along, where, oh, potentially I could make more money and have uh, a semblance of a normal life, you know, where I can, you know, work from nine to five and go home mm-hmm. and take it easy. Um, so, yeah, okay, I'm ready for a break. So that's, what I, that's why I took the job. I, I, I had my taste of uh, the freelance monthly comic book artist life and realized it's not for everybody. You really have to be made out of special stuff to be able to put up with the long hours, the the, the, the solitude of it. You know, like it's 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 great if you can do it. You know, and I admire people who can do it and do it well. But you know, maybe I wasn't cut out to be that person. Mm-hmm. So when I was given this opportunity, I took it. What? Did, how did that make you feel at the time that you know Jim thought enough of you to kind of offer you the full editor, you know, ship to kind of come back into the editorial fold? I mean, that you, it was. It was flattering. It's nice to know that he took notice that I wasn't just some fly-by-night guy who worked there for a couple of years and left and disappeared from the, from his radar. So it was nice that he, mm-hmm. nice that he noticed me that I was when I was assistant editor uh, that he noticed that I was uh, intelligent. <laughs> and then when I got on Ghost Rider, not only was I the artist, but after um, Mark Demattis came aboard as the writer after several issues. Uh, I was co-plotting with stories with him, and I guess he liked the stories, mm. and so um, he must realize, oh, this guy not only can he draw, but you know he knows something about storytelling, you know, it's about writing stories. And uh, anyway, I don't know, I don't know exactly know what was going on in his mind. He might have just been desperate. I was, a, <laughs> I was, a, my last name began with B. I was at the top of his Rolodex. Who knows? I don't know. <laughs> was uh, just working with Jim in general. I mean, was he an intimidating presence around the office? in general or like you know what what was it what was the general vibe while he was working there no nah, he wasn't intimidated yeah yeah i mean he he look a lot of people a lot of people got on the wrong side of jim over the years without a doubt okay so yeah maybe he had friction with certain people um but i worked well with him you know he gave me opportunities he put me on transformers uh, which became a big big deal for me you know i didn't ask to be put on transformers I wasn't, uh, he didn't demand, I, I got to take this job or else, you know, he, uh, he gave me different opportunities and I was happy to, to try them out. And, uh, he gave me the opportunity to co-plot stories on the Avengers, 
this is before Transformers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did a couple of those issues. Um, Jim Jim had a, uh, a talent, I think, uh, talent and, and a willingness that if he spotted somebody who he thought had the ability, he'd give him a chance. There's nothing intimidating about that. That's like wonderful that he mm-hmm. he felt that you know he could take a chance on somebody uh, that he could he could spot somebody's ability and uh, potential and and let them try out, let, you know and try them out. So I always felt like. I had a pretty good working relationship with Jim overall. Uh, there were times when we had a little friction, but there were really minor things, mm-hmm. you know, because he's the boss. You know, you can't you can't expect to 100% of the time please the boss. That's, no. that's the boss's job is to, to, to tell you sometimes, you know, kick this in gear or change that. Yeah, it happens, but it's no big deal. I, edit, I edited him on Secret Wars 2, and um, the, the one thing that came up about that was he wrote some story that featured featured the main character, the Beyonder, in some situation, which got a lot of negative feedback. And and after the fact, after it was printed and he saw this negative feedback, I said to him, "Yeah, I thought that was a little, you know, a little chancy myself. A little, you know, mm-hmm. maybe not in good taste. I forget the words I put. I used. He got mad at me for that. He said, you're the editor. You should tell me these things." You know, you shouldn't have just let me do it. And I said, well, I figured you're the editor-in-chief. You set the standard. So if you think it's okay, it's okay. Mm. But anyway, so I mean, so we had like a little run-in on that. But it, you know, it wasn't no, it was just a little bump in the road. It was nothing special. Sure. Um, that's like one thing I remember. But overall, I really appreciate Jim for giving me the opportunities he gave me. I could comment on the more the, the more general Jim Shooter, you know, um, uh Relationships to other people, and, you know, some because he obviously had friction with other people. But frankly, I'm not really interested in talking so much about Jim Shooter and how he related to other people. You know, that's for them to talk. That's for them to say, not for me. For sure. um, so anyway, but overall, like I said, I appreciate all the opportunities Jim gave me. I learned a lot from him, and uh, and then he left, and life went on without him, mm-hmm. which is fine. You know, I, I worked really well with Tom DeFalco as a replacement. So we don't have a lot more time, and I feel like I'm going to have to have you come back because I feel like the Transformers <laughs> thing is so big that you can't give it short thrift because it's such a huge element. But I, I'm curious, like some of the things I've read and have heard you say, the idea that you know, in a lot of ways, it was you know, it was the, it was the work. It was this opportunity to, to to do something and build something, but not necessarily you know something that you held up as you know, oh my god, I get to do all this because obviously no one knew what Transformers was going to be and how people would eventually react to that years after the fact. How interest? How weird has it been for you over the years as the work that you did and the legacy you left behind on Transformers has been appreciated by generations after you? It's been weird, but I mean, I'm kind of used to it by now, but it's not like yesterday. It, does, it sure. didn't happen uh, yesterday. It's been, it's been going on for a couple of decades now. Mm-hmm. But I worked on Transformers from, from November 83 through the early part of 89. So over five years, okay? Mm-hmm. And at the time, I did whatever I felt I could do. I did my best job that I was capable of doing. And I was ready to leave the book, actually probably a full year ahead of, t- ahead of when I finally left it. Um, because I felt I had, you know, without getting into great detail, I can, I can if you want to ask more questions about it. But I felt, okay, I'm, I'm done with this. I want to move on to other other opportunities, other things that I wanted to do. And so I just felt like, okay, I'm done. The book is dying. The, the toy franchise is dying. It was good while it lasted. Mm-hmm. So nobody, under those circumstances, I certainly didn't expect that um, 
like 15 or so years later, uh, Steven Spielberg would uh, decide to make this a billion dollar live action movie franchise or wherever <laughs> Spielberg was working with Michael Bay, whoever. Um, was it Michael Bay? Am I getting it right? Michael Bay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. So whoever, you know, whoever, like all of a sudden, and, and it already came back to life before that. I was vaguely aware that uh, Transformers came back to life in the mid to late 90s and different, you know, different versions and all. But I was, you know, I moved on. I wasn't paying attention to it. I wasn't, I wasn't picking up the new Transformers comic books to read them. I didn't really care, you know. So it did get kind of weird. And the weirdest thing was, like, I think around 1999, you know, when the internet was still fairly n- new, uh, before, I don't know, whatever whatever was Google back then, I don't think Google was around quite yet. Oh, yeah, whatever, no. the, whatever search engine there was, and I typed in my name, and I discovered there were these Transformers forums talking about my work from 15 years earlier and, and mostly blasting it. Really? You know? And I was like, wow, like, don't these people have a life? You know, like, is it, you know, they, they, they read it when they were kids and they're, they're, now they're adults and they're, they're, they're regurgitating these old stories that I wrote, which were really aimed at kids. So, you know, I mean, it didn't really, I didn't really get, I wasn't bothered by it because I got paid for my work. It was appreciated at the time. And, mm-hmm. and so anyway, I was just fascinated that there was this whole cottage industry of people looking at my old work and examining it and reviewing it and saying things about me. Um, and people initially, people initially were saying things like basically like Bob was a recluse because I don't know what, because they didn't know where I was or what I was doing. <laughs> they assumed that because I was no longer involved in the greater Transformers fan community that I had, you know, went, went to live on a mountain in Tibet or something. And uh, it was not, you know, it was nothing further from the truth. I had just moved on. And then eventually I started getting more involved, both in answering questions and being interviewed and going to Transformers conventions. And then people started loving me and say, oh, Bob, you know, he's... You know, we love his stories. We love, you know, and not universally, but a lot of people. A lot of people came to my defense. Not that I ever did, but I didn't feel I had to. And they, they, they loved my interviews, and they were, you know, said, "Oh, I met at a convention. He's a nice guy." So all of a sudden, my uh, reputation was, uh, you know, was, was was I don't know, resuscitated somehow. Not that not that it should have been trashed in the first place. I never did anything to merit the the initial criticism I was getting. But that's that's showbiz. Okay, I can take it. So yeah, it was a weird experience initially to see my to see me go through all of these um, uh, different perspectives because I worked on a comic book fifteen or twenty years earlier that I put behind me, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden all this stuff comes back to life again. For sure. Well, I, it's interesting, yeah, because I those kids who loved it it became something bigger to them, right? And I guess oh, yeah. I guess it's interesting too because the whole kind of rise of nostalgia more as a as an industry, you know it. It was not as you know. I mean, nostalgia has always been there, but it was much more kind of taking hold in, in and around the more modern period. I guess when suddenly people can have access to tracking down things that they you know missed when they were younger, and uh, all these you know kind of rebuying childhood and that kind of thing. And so, if you had you had such a huge impact on that area, that makes sense that you know suddenly there'd be a lot of people revisiting that that work in a way that they may not have done before. Right, and the internet provides um, a, a platform which hadn't existed a few years earlier. Mm-hmm. So you can share your nostalgic feelings not just with, you know, your friend who you grew up with, who you still, uh, you know, you're still friends with, but you can share it with this vast community of people out there, and they reinforce you, and you reinforce them, mm-hmm. and it becomes, uh, you know, instantaneous gratification. I could talk about whatever 
nostalgic brand that you know affected me as a child. Now, not just with my old buddy that I grew up with, but with you know plenty of you know all these other people who have the same interests as me. So, uh, it's a, nostalgia has really uh, become an industry in itself, much more so than ever before. So I'm curious, uh, I know we're kind of running lower on my time here for today, um, but what I'm really curious about is your uh, your time as the editor-in-chief of the Spider-Man titles, because that was obviously a, a crazy period in general at Marvel. You suddenly, you don't have the main editor-in-chief anymore. Now you have these kind of smaller editor-in-chiefs. So you have, you're the editor-in-chief of the Spider-Man line. Initially, you still have a Spider-Man group, under, group editor below you, and then you have the clone saga that you've kind of inherited. I just wanted to walk me through what that was like as a as an experience in the bullpen kind of at the time when editorial is going through all these rapid shifts and you're in the middle of a very intensive storyline that's happening in all of your kind of books. Yeah, okay, that's a... Um, it's a big one. A, a big mouthful to digest there. So, um, yeah, you, you kind of put it in the right setup, which is I walked into the middle of this clone saga line I had no connection to the Spider-Man books up until this moment. This was about October, uh, September, October of 1994, mm. when um, the president of Marvel at the time, Terry Stewart, decided to decentralize the editorial uh, staff, de- decentralize the editor-in-chief position into five different lines. And I guess he um, he had some respect for my work because I've been doing a lot of other things that were fairly uh, high profile and profitable for the company. And he said, okay, Bob, I want you to have the Spider-Man line. Great. You know, I love Spider-Man. Great. You know, although I have no connection to it, I love it. And I inherited a staff of editors. Uh, you mentioned there was a group editor, and there were ed- other editors who worked under him. So I inherited that staff, all these books. And um, and I didn't know anything about the Clone Saga line, so the Clone Saga story. And so I got into it, and I was really kind of troubled by it, by the way it was going to go, but I figured, well... I'm walking into the middle of this and there's a lot of pressure to put out product and because Marvel was struggling at the time to meet its budget, you know, make enough profit for various complicated reasons which we don't have to get into at the moment. Um, but I gotta you know, I gotta do my job. I gotta I gotta do the best I can with what I'm it was a classic making lemonade out of lemons uh, situation I felt mm-hmm. I was in. So I'm working with all these very very uh, experienced, talented people that were working on the books like Mark DeMattis, Tom DeFalco, mm-hmm. uh, the group editor, Danny Fingerworth. They had already signed on to this, this storyline. I wasn't going to like take a big detour off the road that they had, you know, that, that they were, that they were following. So, so yeah, it was, it was rough. It was very rough because what happened was, uh, inevitably what the plan was, uh, this is a spoiler alert. If anybody doesn't know what's called, <laughs> what happened on Saga. Um, okay. So, uh, uh the, the clone from Spider-Man back from, story, from a story back in the early 70s the clone of Spider-Man who now has a name Ben Riley, uh, comes back and uh, it turns out two things happen Peter Parker and Mary Jane are expecting a child and it turns out that Ben Riley, the clone is, real, is the real Peter Parker they got switched way back in the 70s in that original storyline and Peter Parker is really the clone and the reason that was done was because a decision had been made, again, before I got on board, that uh, Mary Jane and Peter were going to become parents. And then the realization came came, came down, dawned on these, the, the uh, Spider-Man staff, the Spider-Man crew, the editors and writers. The realization dawned on them that 
we don't want Peter Parker to be a father. You know, that would remove him one step further from his from the core audience of who is reading the books. He's already married. He used to be a, a single teenager with problems. Now he's, you know, a more successful, older person with his incredibly gorgeous wife. Oh, and now he's going to become a daddy. So every step was taking him away from his core audience. And the way the Spider-Man crew figured out how to get out of it was, oh, we know what we'll do. Uh, well, the, I think the clone story was come up, some, uh, Terry Cavanaugh was one of the writers. He came up with it independently. And so they decided, oh, what we'll do to fix the problem is we'll make the clone the real Peter Parker. So the Peter Parker who's going to become a father is not the real Spider-Man. So we solved that problem that way. We'll give the baby to this clone Parker, not to the real Parker. Fine. Okay, so I went along with it. Fans hated it. Fans just despised it because they felt justifiably so that they've been cheated. All these years they've been following Spider-Man. It's been the fake Spider-Man. So I, I kind of pulled in the troops. I said, look, you know, to my writers, to my editors, let's figure out a storyline that can get us out of this hole that we dug for ourselves. And uh, so I, that, that I spent a lot of my latter half of my tenure as a Spider-Man editor, editor trying to uh, accomplish that. Uh, and we reached a point where we figured out some story and then um, Bob Harris by that point the X-Men uh, editor-in-chief had been promoted over all the other, other editors-in-chief and he came down to my office and said Bob we're planning a big X-Men event so you gotta table the Spider-Man event and then a couple months later uh, myself and you know half the, half the editorial staff were laid off so it never happened when you're working on that book, is, so it's interesting because obviously the Spider-Man office felt like that was the one that was still making money, right? Like, I mean, as much as people can decry the clone saga, the sales were going up during much of the period. So how how was it like? So you're you're now the editor-in-chief of the Spider-Man books, and obviously marketing is having a, more of a control over some of the aspects of the, the publishing at that point. What was it like to kind of have to deal with the public, that part of the of the job? Uh, kind of what marketing wanted because of the successes that were happening in other places like you had the rapid expansion of the X line, you have stuff like the Age of Apocalypse happening, you have you know them wanting to kind of replicate that kind of success how was it trying to balance the creative versus what marketing really wanted to drive sales? Well I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to the end of the story before I get to the beginning which is we, the Spider-Man office we put out books, we made our budget that year at a time when Marvel was imploding other, other Marvel books were just falling off the shelf. They were not selling, X-Men, X-Men uh, being an exception. But, um, but the Spider-Man books were doing really well. This, this, the, clone line, the clone saga was helping to sell books. And we were, pl- we were pulling all sorts of stunts, which I think, in retrospect, were a lot of fun. They were, like, they were, we, were, we were having fun with the fans, and the fans appreciated it. We, for I think, uh, I forget how many months, was it six months or a couple of months, we discontinued all the regular Spider-Man titles and replaced it with Scarlet Spider's titles because now it was the Scarlet Spider, not the Spider-Man. And, you know, that, that didn't help. That didn't hurt us one bit. You know, fans loved it. Um, and uh, so we did a lot of, and we did um, Maximum Clonage as a special edition instead of Maximum Carnage, which had come out, you know, a year or two earlier. Mm-hmm. And so we were just doing as much, we were just having as much fun with it as we could, as we could. And I, I think the fans, you know, we're, we're into it uh, up to a, up to a point anyway. So we were so that was good. That was the good part. The other part, but the other part was you're right. Um, sales and marketing was coming down 
frequently saying, you know, we need another uh, issue zero. We need another special cover that we could up the price on it for a couple of bucks. So as many special special variant covers uh, that, that had a price premium put on it, uh, as many that came out, there were probably an equal number that I rejected successfully. <laughs> because, you know, if it was up to sales and marketing, every cover would have been some special cover with a higher price point or whatever. And I just kept saying, look, guys, you got to like, you got to dial it back a little bit, you know? Mm-hmm. you know, you just can't keep doing the same stuff. But when we did do the special, pro- the special covers, I tried my best to make them special. One in particular was a complete flop, but the others I thought came out pretty good. Like the backs from Clonish cover, mm-hmm. we did this um, kind of holo- almost holographic, it wasn't holographic, but we did this kind of embossed, metallic, mm-hmm. transparent cover, which was pretty cool. We did one cover for Spectacular Spider-Man where we actually had jail cell bars cut out of the cardboard cover. Mm-hmm. You know, so you flip it open and see who's behind the jail cell bars. Uh, I think we did another one with uh, a cutout of a, a spider symbol on it mm-hmm. where you saw different, um, different characters in different corners of the cover behind the spider symbol. So, you know, we tried to make it look special and fun and, and do, do what we could with it. But, yeah, you know, at that, to- at that time, um, the, the sales and marketing people were going crazy, putting pressure on all, so all the editors to come up with these special editions so they could up-price the books, mm-hmm. which yeah. the editors felt was really unfair to the fans. Now, speaking of, I guess the one you say was the, the major flop, I'm guessing you're, you're speaking of Amazing Spider-Man 400 there? Yeah, that was that the one with the uh, supposed gravestone on the cover? Yeah. Yes, yeah, that was horrible. Yeah. So I'm, so I'm curious about it because in, in the idea of it, it's actually pretty pretty cool. Like, I, again, I, execution may not have worked out, but the concept was interesting. So, again, when you guys are coming up with these ideas, like, you're kind of... It's exciting because if you look at all the different covers that you guys are doing, as you said, you tried a lot of different things that hadn't been seen before. So what what was behind the impetus to really make all these covers special? Was it just, you know, let's do something different or, you know, I guess I don't want to use the word gimmick because it seems like it's been used as a dirty word these days. That's a gimmick. <laughs> but, but they are, right? But I mean, but yeah, they're... they are. But it's not like... I guess the idea is like behind every... money. I mean, the impetus... It never came from the editorial... It never came from the editorial side. We didn't say, mm-hmm. oh, it's... Um, you know, it's issue 275, let's put a special cover on it. We didn't say that, but somebody would say, oh, it's a multiple of 25, let's put a special cover on it. Mm-hmm. You know, and we, could, and we could increase the price a dollar or two. So it was never editorial that wanted to do these things. It never made, it, it didn't really matter to us. Mm-hmm. We, we, I mean, we always were very sympathetic to the fans. We knew, you know, you're asking fans to spend money and you're, you're making these more, I mean, like, you know, fans feel like, not only do they have to buy it, but maybe they have to buy extra copies because maybe they're collectible, mm. you know. And 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 so we we meaning Marvel, not so much editorial, but but we uh, were preying on that psychology, like taking advantage of that psychology that you know if, if you make it look more collectible, they'll buy more. They may buy more than one copy of it, which worked. You know that indeed happened, I guess, to some extent. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it was just that was just what the times times were were like back then. Yeah, mm-hmm. All this new technology coming out, all these new printing techniques, and uh, and sometimes it made sense, and sometimes it was just like being forced upon us. And and uh, and uh, I'm speaking for myself, I, I I won some battles, and other battles I said, okay, we'll go with it, we'll do it. I think 
I mean, I, I know some of it worked on me. I remember uh, when I was in like grade seven, I had a bunch of the Untold Tales of Spider-Man issues, and I really liked, and they were stolen out of my locker one day, and I was really sad about it. So my mom was like, "Well, I'll take it to the comic book store, and you can rebuy the issues." So she gives me the money, and I go in. And they have Sensational Spider-Man number zero with the you know the the, the hologram lenticular cover. And I, it won me over. I was like, well, I could buy those other issues. I could do multiple issues because they're only a dollar each. Or I could buy this one big special issue. And so I bought that issue. And so part of me as, a, as an adult looks back and goes, oh, man, like that's not what your mom wanted. But at the same time, that sensational Spider-Man issue meant a lot to me when I was younger. And I loved it. And I read that thing uh, like a lot. Um, so, but it definitely it was the reason why I picked it up is it had that cool moving cover. So it definitely worked. It's, yeah, well, if it didn't work, we wouldn't, have been, we wouldn't have done it. You know, we would have quickly moved on to something else if those things didn't work. So I have a question about when Ben Riley does, you know, take over as Spider-Man. So two main questions. First of all, so I believe it was your idea to make his hair blonde. I I don't remember. I don't know. Maybe. Well, I think wasn't he? Didn't didn't he turn blonde in the Dan Jurgens books? Or am I mistaken? It was yeah. It was in Sensational Spider-Man Zero, which would have been after yeah the first uh, Dan Jurgens yeah. book, I think, which is after so, he did the the um, the Scarlet Spider books for the two months. So he had the two months okay, of those. So, so so it might have been Dan's idea. I don't really remember. No. Well, I if, mind. if I it was you, I appreciate it. At the time saying it was my idea, it was my idea. <laughs> I don't. Well, I appreciate it if it was because you know, I was a blonde kid and suddenly Spider-Man's blonde. I'm like, yeah, let's do this. Um, okay. So that's number one. Number two is just in general, given that you guys had a character taking over a Spider-Man and then you're going to give him a new costume, what was the background kind of design work and how many different designers or different artists did you have kind of coming up with ideas to be the new costume? Because that's a big move. Like, as a kid, I don't think I would have appreciated how big a move it would have been, but up until this point, you had Spider-Man's regular costume and you had the black costume, and they hadn't really done a lot of variants on that, so suddenly you're replacing it, you know, theoretically for a while, um, for good, so to speak. You know, in comic book terms, that's never that long, but you know what I mean? So what was that kind of process to develop a new costume? I think it... I mean, I... It's been a while, so I don't remember every detail, but I think it was just part of a natural process. We're creating a new Spider-Man. Let's give him a new costume. Mm-hmm. Let's really make him a new a new person, a new character, until we bring him back to his old character, like make him distinct from this, mm-hmm. from that. And um, and by the way, Dan Jurgens came on that book. You know, one of the things that sold him on that book, on coming to Marvel, leaving DC, coming to Marvel, mm-hmm. and having his own Spider-Man book, was that we were going to turn. Um, uh, Peter Parker I don't know. we were going to get back to the original status quo mm. and, uh, and and so he, he wanted to be part of that and then when Bob Harris stepped in Dan quit <laughs> <laughs> he, he said okay I'll finish this issue and I'm gone with you you know you, you not meaning me specifically but Marvel reneged on the plans that were laid out to him that were mm. originally signed for it's interesting because I do feel like that those last few months of the Clone Saga, which I guess would have been the kind of waiting to get to the end, so to speak, felt like maybe it let the creators, you know, a little bit off the leash a little because they now knew what was coming and so they could kind of play into it, but also just kind of have some fun while they still had Ben Riley around. And I feel like they definitely made Ben even more like kind of enjoyable and endearing at that time because we, they knew they were going to kill him off or that his end was coming. So it no, made no, sense. No. I mean, when we say the end of the club, I mean, he's talking about after I left because there was no plan to kill him off. Was there no plan to kill him off at that point? Not, not when I was involved. I think eventually he got killed off. Yeah. That was like a year later. Um, 
but no, no, I don't think, no, I, I mean, I don't know if, if, if it came across that the creators were having more fun. I don't remember. I do remember it was torture. Um, <laughs> planning those stories because it was one storyline, the Pwn Saga. Mm-hmm. We had four monthly Spider-Man, Spider-Man books at the time, one every week in a month, and we had a plan, okay, so in your issue, you're going to take them from A to B, and in your issue, you're going to take them from B to C, and so on. And the writers hated it. I don't blame them one bit. Mm-hmm. You know, so I was, I was trying to get out of that hole as quickly as we could. Like, let's get past this clone saga and move on. Yeah. But we, you know, we had this, we had certain uh, target dates. You know, we wanted to. I don't remember exactly what it was, but you know, we wanted it to happen in this particular book, in this particular issue, where this big revelation would happen. So meanwhile, we were treading water to get to that that particular issue. Mm-hmm. So I remember particularly. Um, uh, Todd DeZago, who was the writer for, uh, I forget which one it was, The Web of Spider-Man, I think. I think that was the one he was writing. Mm-hmm. I mean, he always seemed to get the short end of the stick. Like, oh, yeah, Todd, let's see. got to figure out something for, for, for Spider-Man to do in your issue, Todd. You know, it was really unfair. It was really unfair. And he was a really good trooper, but, you know, he was, you know, he was suffering probably more than the other writers because we just didn't, you know, we just, we were just treading water. And you know, a lot of times... Nothing much happened in his stories as a result. When 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 Dan Jurgens does come over, I mean, obviously he would have just spent time, a lot of time at the, in the Superman office working on a very similar kind of idea, uh, basically a weekly Superman book. So he would have at least been used to that idea of kind of working with a. Yeah, but Dan came over after this was all behind us. Yeah. He, Sensational Spider-Man was like the, you know launching a whole, whole new era of Spider-Man. Clone mm-hmm. Saga was gone, was behind us. Mm. So he had a pretty free reign. If you look at those issues, which I don't remember that well, but, oh, I'm going to bring back Mysterio, I'm going to bring mm. back all these classic characters and do what I want to do with them. Mm. We didn't burden him with all this other stuff. They brought in some new, uh, uh, new uh, cast of supporting characters, he brought in a couple of characters. You know, he had a pretty free reign to do what he wanted to do, which was, again, a big reason why he accepted the, he accepted the assignment. Mm-hmm. If we said to him, if I had said to him, Dan, I want you to come aboard and you're going to be involved in this this multi-story line going through four different uh, titles and you're going to be title number three or something you know he would have never said yes hmm. he wanted you know justifiably he wanted his freedom you know so before by the way yeah. if, I, if I can digress for a moment sure since you mentioned so we're talking about Dan Jurgens. so obviously Dan Jurgens is well known for the death of Superman storyline which indirectly led to Spider-Man to Peter Parker and Mary Jane having a baby hmm. you know that uh, not completely, no. Okay, you want to hear that story? Yes, I do, absolutely. Okay, so, back, I don't know, I don't know, that happened like in 92 or 93, mm-hmm. Death of Superman, something around then? Yep. So, back then, it's hard to believe to, to today's comic book aficionados, back then, mainstream media could care less about comic books. You know, nowadays, you know, it's all over the place, movies, television, you know, this star is going to be in this movie, that star is going to be in that movie. Uh, mainstream media can't get enough of comic books, you know, covering comic books. Okay. So back then, Death of Superman became a big media event. And one day it appeared, uh, I think as, a, as an ep- uh, they did they did a segment on the Today Show about the, uh, the, the, the Death of Superman, mm-hmm. which was phenomenal. You know, nationally, well, the Today Show is a national show. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and it's seen in every market. It has good, good, you know, good audience. It appeals to like 
stay-at-home moms mostly, and you know, it's not like it's appealing to a comic book crowd. And and so, the, our marketing people, our promotions people, our executive staff were alerted to this. We got to do something. What can we do to get that kind of media buzz? You know, so because all we're doing, all Marvel was doing at that time was outselling all the competition by significant amounts. They weren't getting on the Today Show, which is what, which was really what counted to mm-hmm. these other people, right? Yeah. So, so we had this editorial meeting, and I remember being there with the president of the company, president of the company, and other senior editors, the editor in chief, uh, people from promotions, and so on. What can we do? And at the time, I was not editing any of the mainstream comic books. I was doing other things, so I didn't want to step on anybody's toes and say, "Oh, I have a great idea. Let's let's do this with the X Men. Let's do this with the Spider." Spider-Man, I didn't want to get involved. I just sat there. But what came out of that meeting was, you know, we got it. Spider-Man will become a dad. <laughs> <laughs> That'll appeal to the Today Show crowd. That'll get him on TV. Now, I don't know if that ever got on TV, frankly. I have no idea. Probably not. But that's what that was the germ of, of, of what started that whole ball rolling, that we got to compete with the death of Superman because there was a segment of it that was shown about it on the, on the Today Show. So one bad decision led to another, <laughs> just like a snowball effect going downhill, you know. So that's what, that's how that came to be. That's funny. I mean, it's interesting too because I guess even the death of Superman only happened because you know there's a Lois and Clark TV show is about to come out, so they didn't want to have them get married, so they end up spitballing other ideas and then they kill them off instead. So it's interesting how many different dominoes led to you know eventually, as you said, you know Peter and Mary Jane need a kid need a kid now. Yeah. So anyway, there you go. So the last thing I guess I'll because uh, we've gone over time, but again, I'm very appreciative of you and your great stories. Um, one thing I want to ask about is that you worked, as you kind of said, in other special projects uh, in that kind of early '90s period, and so you have this rapid expansion in the comic industry. Suddenly, uh, you know, cards are a big biz- booming, starting to be a big booming business. So comic book trading cards, and you're working on a bunch of these different lines that were launched. What was it like? at that time and what was the impression or like how did people approach these types of projects and was it just because this is a new collectible market we can kind of tap into and let's you know get our biggest guys on these projects or what was the germ of it well okay so talking about trading cards specifically I mean up up until the trading cards trading cards started in 1990 um, in house at Marvel but before that Marvel was making deals with toy companies with the National Football League with movie Mm -hmm movie production studios. and So this is not uncommon that Marvel was reaching out beyond just mm-hmm. publishing comic books. They were looking for all sorts of partners, whether to bring their project, their products into Marvel or bring Marvel out to other venues. Okay, mm-hmm. So Training Car specifically was bringing Marvel to a different venue. Up until then, up until 1990, Marvel was doing the traditional thing, which was we're licensing our product, our Marvel, Marvel characters, to a different company that does trading cards. We're going to give you um, artwork that's already appeared in the comic books. You can repurpose it, use it for trading cards. You know, somebody might take a glance at what they're doing, but generally they were done on the cheap. They weren't done, you know, especially well. They only appealed to a very limited uh, market of uh, people who went to comic book stores. It wasn't mass market like a more traditional sports cars would go to. Like they would go to uh, grocery stores and hobby hobby stores and. You know, uh, uh, I don't know wherever, wherever wherever you bought trading cards back then, but they would reach a far wider audience. So, 
Marvel made a deal with Impel, Impel Marketing, which was a subdivision of uh, Liggett and Myers, which which was a tobacco company based in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. So Liggett and Myers had this vast network of distribution because that's where they sell cigarettes. You know, and all these grocery stores and um, uh, you know the, the little the little uh, food shops you see at, at gas stations and I don't know wherever they sold them they sold a lot so they started recently a business uh, called Impel Marketing to sell trading cards and Marvel was not their first client but I think it might have been the second first was the National Basketball Association mm-hmm. so they made a deal the idea was. We're going to continue to do trading cards this time with Impel. We're going to improve the quality. But the real wrinkle on this was rather than have Impel do the cards, Marvel will take it in-house, and we will produce all the uh, content for the cards. We'll design them. We'll hire artists. We'll hire writers. We'll put it together. You distribute them and sell them. That works spectacularly well. You know, Everybody, the direct market wanted them, the uh, you know, retail shops, Plus, their usual venues. So people who had never looked at comic books before, uh, you know, kids especially, would see these cards and say, oh, these are cool. They looked at the cards, they loved the cards, and a lot of them wound up becoming regular comic book readers as a result. And so I worked on those cards for uh, about five years. I did 11 different sets over those five-year period, over that five-year period. And it was, it was great. I loved working on the cards. It was, it was, it was virgin territory. No, I mean, we were given some advice, not necessarily good advice at the beginning, but once we proved that we knew what we were doing, um, you know, it was like, okay, the next set is going to be Marvel Universe 2. What do you guys want to do? You know, after Marvel Universe 1 blew out of the stores, what do you want to do for Marvel Universe 2? And we came up with new ideas, new ways to display the information, and they loved that. And then we came up with X-Men, and we had Jim Lee, we had Jim Lee illustrate the entire set of X-Men, and that blew out. And, you know, one after the other all successes and so it was great working on them and we worked, I worked with great people uh, the artists loved working on them because uh, they liked doing these little pinups and they also got paid pretty well for it and they looked really cool on the cards and so it was a it was a win-win it was really a lot of fun and my experience again I was special projects editor <clears throat> I had no experience in trading cards my only experience my only experience was limited to uh, when I was a kid I used to collect baseball cards so I had some vague idea of what they were about, you know, what baseball cards look like, and you know, there was a back to it and there was a front to it, and you know, and so I kind of knew the basics, but I wasn't like I was an expert in that particular industry. But I had pretty good knowledge of Marvel Comics and what it meant to put out a product that represented uh, what Marvel Comics was all about, and so I think I was able to combine that with this new format, and we came out with really uh, successful cards, both commercially and uh, critically. You know, fans loved it. And they sold really well. Which, uh, I mean, as you said, you worked on a number of them. What do you think was the most uh, commercially successful of the ones that you worked on? I don't have an answer for that. They were all commercially successful. <laughs> you know, I never heard like, oh, we couldn't sell all of the, all of the cards. I, I mean, all, all I heard was stories like, uh, you know, they printed a certain amount and the stores want more. Hmm. So they were all commercially successful. You know, uh Critically, you can look at them and say, and you can say, "Well, this set looked better than that set, or this set had these uh, these aspects of it which were, you know, novel and, and interesting." You can you can make those kind of ob- uh, subjective uh, comments about what what made this one better than another one, but um, but objectively, they all sold. They all were successful. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a flop among them. 
I can definitely attest to them being again a good uh, a good way to get kids in the comics because I remember as a kid you know seeing those in the playground type of thing people you know showing them around and they're tremendously impactful and they're again as I kind of mentioned off podcast before we started but there's still some where there's I have a tremendous level of affection for them and I just. I don't know. I, I look at them and I feel like I'm, you know, 12 or 13 year, uh, again. Because, you know, they, they, they hit that, that nostalgia button, right? Like, they're, they're really something. Um, what, uh, what was the last one you worked on? I believe the last one I worked on, that's a good question. Um, it was either Marvel Universe 4 or, Mar- I don't know, maybe Marvel Masterpieces 3, which was the Hildebrandt set. Okay. Um, you know, I don't know what came out in 1994. The Hildebrand set came out that year, and uh, maybe the Spider-Man set came out that year too. The one by Mark, the one by Mark Bagley. Uh, yeah, so, actually, that makes sense. I think that's right. I think that was the '94 set for Spider-Man. Yeah, so it might have been one of one or the other of those. Sets. Also, there was also a third X-Men set that year. I think that I might have worked on. Yeah, well, that's right. That's right too. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I, what was it? Those, what was it like working with the Hildebrands on their set? Oh, it was great. I mean, first of all, I always admired their work. And then uh, previous to that set, uh, they had approached Marvel. Uh, they and their business manager approached Marvel and said, you know, we'd like to get into comic book artwork. We'd like to do something for comics. And um, and at some point, I guess they were introduced to me, and they did some cards for a previous Marvel Universe set, like before they, were, they, did, their, before they did their own set. Mm-hmm. They did, some, some, I think, some of the chase cards. The hard, the harder to collect cards for maybe uh, Marvel Universe three or four or whatever it was, I think. And then, um, and then, then we decided, okay, this is good. This is a good. This, you know, they're interested and they're a big name, and we think they could sell cards. So we'll have them do uh, Marvel Masterpieces three, which was in 1994, mm-hmm. and just illustrate the entire set by themselves. Each each card will be <clears throat> a painted image by. Uh, Greg and Tim Hildebrand. So I went. I go down to their studio. It was in New Jersey. I go down and watch them work, and it was interesting watching them work. And the really interesting thing was um, for them and for me was uh, they were new to superheroes. You know, they had a certain style, a certain kind of grand grandeur to the way they presented their characters. Mm-hmm. They all looked to me like almost like Greek statues. You know, like you know, these these classic poses and these majestic poses. Marvel Comics isn't like that, the way they depict characters. Their characters are, you know, bam, pow, you know, coming in your face. So they would hand in original, they would hand in sketches, pencil sketches of what they plan to do for for the characters. And I would say to them, yeah, but, you know, it's nice, but you got to put more oomph into it. And I would do an overlay showing the Hildebrands, you know, who are like legends in their field, show them the Marvel way of taking that same idea and presenting it in a more dynamic way, you know, with more foreshortening and more in your face. And they loved it. They, they dug it. They said, oh, yeah, yeah, keep doing that. You know, thank you. Thank you for showing us this. They, they couldn't have been better students, and they were the Hildebrand. So I was really, it was a really good working relationship. Wow. And, they were, and then, you know, the ultimate product that they produced was, was, was really nice. They did some really terrific card artwork. You know, card artwork. Mm-hmm. It was a very nice, nice-looking set. Do you have do you, for all the sets you worked on? Do you still have like do you have full sets of your own? Um, well, first of all, I was given uncut trading card sheets, okay. so I have lots of those. I don't display them; they're just 
taking up space, frankly. And then I was given, um, you know, I, I, I mean, here's an example. I happen to have this near me. Here's the X-Men, the binder for the X-Men uh, 1992 set. So, you know, it's not actually not even complete, but it's mostly complete. Mm-hmm. So, so anyway, I would get, um, you know, everything put organized and put together because I'm, it's part of my job, so I should keep track of this stuff. And they would give me a different product. They'd give me a case of cards that I never opened or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I got, I got plenty of this stuff. When you were working on, to go back to Transformers, when you were working on like developing a lot of the stuff before some of the action figures were coming out, did you get any of that stuff as well? So initially, when, when, when I started working on Transformers, this is before Transformers was a, was, a, was a comic book, before it was an animated TV show, before it was an American toy. It was, it was a Japanese toy, and uh, mm-hmm. Hasbro made a deal to uh, license the products of two Japanese companies that were doing these toys, and they would call, and that was Bandai and Takara, those were the two companies, and they would produce them, they would repaint them, but they were the same toys, and they would rebrand them as the Transformers. Mm-hmm. And so when I was first working on the Transformers, I was given the toys because the toys existed for, the, that, for that initial, you know, uh, line of toys or maybe the first couple of lines and then eventually the Japanese toys ran out and Hasbro started having to started to, need, started to have to um, uh, design their own new toys so at that point I was given model sheets of what the toys would look like mm. uh, but I didn't demand like oh every toy that I have something to do with give me a toy as, a, as my own free sample I didn't really need more toys I had plenty of stuff in mm. a small apartment at the time I didn't need more junk in it <laughs> As I said, it was it was a job at the time too, right? Like, yeah. yes. we can mythologize as much as we want what the creation of the Transformers was like, but at the time it was a gig, and it was a good gig, but it was a gig, right? Oh, definitely, yes, yes, yes. And I, I poured myself into it. I I did everything I could to you know make to to make it exciting and as good as I could. Uh, I wound up naming about two hundred and fifty of those guys. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, I guess as you said, that that that, that was the job. Yep. Okay. Yep. Well, Bob, thank you so much for spending so much of your time. I think we are. I originally said thirty to forty-five. We went way past that, so I'm very appreciative no. of of. Uh, no, your, okay. okay. Thank you for your patience, and uh, but thank you also for your stories. It's been uh, fantastic talking with you. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Nice to talk to you too. Have a good evening. You too.